with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 27. Now, if you didn't know, over the next few weeks, we are actually going to finish the book of Matthew. Like in real time, we've been saying we're going to finish the book of Matthew. We are going to finish it. We are actually in the home stretch. The next couple weeks, this is it. We're going to kind of nail it down. And we've got some really great teachers who are going to help us kind of end the series. So make sure you join us because it's going to be pretty amazing. Um, With that, I've asked Christiana to read uh, our text this morning. Matthew chapter 27, we're going to start in verse 27. Would you stand with me for the reading of God's word? The governor's soldiers took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole company of soldiers around him. They stripped him and and put a scarlet robe on him and then twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on his head. They put a staff in his right hand, then they knelt in front of him and mocked him. Hail, King of the Jews, they said. They spit on him and took the staff and struck him on the head again and again. And they had mocked, after they had mocked him, they took the robe and put his own clothes on him. Then they led him away to crucify him. As they were going out, they met a man from Cyrene named Simon. And they forced him to carry the cross. They came to a place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. There they offered Jesus wine to drink mixed with gall. But after tasting it, he refused to drink it. When they had crucified him, they divided up his clothes by casting lots. And sitting down, they kept watch over him there. Above his head, they placed the written charge against him. This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. The two rebels were crucified with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, You who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross if you are the Son of God. In the same way, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders mocked him. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he wants him. For he said, I am the son of God. In the same way, the rebels who were crucified with him also heaped insults on him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can take a seat. Now, if you've been following along with us at all, you're probably aware that we are coming to the end of our story, not just the end of Matthew, but the end of the story that's being told. And what's important to remember, especially as we conclude our time in this book, is that there is an actual story being told here. And this story, like any of the great ones, is meant not only to inspire, but to change the life of those who read it. Every summer, I only read memoirs and Christian romance novels. That's it. Full stop, full confession. I don't care what you say. I'm proud of my choices. It's healthy. Now, if it sounds weird or strange to you, I want to explain a bit. All year long, you know, kind of the calendar school year, I have to read books about psychology and theology. Great, but not great. I read commentaries and biographies, let's say in a year that's not a COVID year. 
Now, these uh, books kind of get to the brass tacks of life, a little bit more of the nitty-gritty, the sometimes depressing reality that process and labor demand. And I just have to say that it's not always a life-giving splash to the soul to read these books, which means that by summer, I am usually in desperate need of a good story like a good story, a compelling, larger-than-life, redemptive narrative. Give me anything. Francine Rivers, Karen Kingsbury, let's go, ladies. Let's go. I love those stories where um, I start to get lost in it and I'm weirdly praying for the characters at night. Do you know what I'm talking about? Anybody else do that? Where I'm like, God, please. You know, whatever it is. Michael, Hosea needs, you know, like I, I... I am am, am that kind of person. So in the summer, for me, all bets are off. Those are the books I'm reading, and I have no shame about it. It's playtime. Now, I have to say that I never intended for this summer uh, reading change-up to be like a profound practice in my life. In all honesty, it probably came from a place of massive desperation and the need to veg out. Um, But I do have to say that it's actually become incredibly transformative or a transformative rhythm for me, because every summer... Every summer that I read my Christian novels and my memoirs, I find my soul disrupted in the best way. And I find my heart reminded of the incredible power and necessity of story. The power of that threefold trifecta of storytelling, characters, events, and then our interpretation of it all. I'm reminded of the essentialness of what literature people call the denouement of a story that final part of it where the strands of the plot are drawn together and all the situations and circumstances are explained and resolved and we all breathe a deep sigh of relief. It's that wonderful climactic moment where the chain of events finally connect and something is decided. Somehow in it all, I find that in the denouement of another story, like the ones I read during the summer, I usually begin to find lost parts of myself slowly coming back together and coming into focus a bit more too. Stories are powerful because we find ourselves in them. And when we find ourselves in a story, we're able to see not only the character's world, but our world differently. And when Matthew wrote this book, this story we've been reading, He wrote it with the intent that every reader and every hearer would find themselves in it too. Now today we are going to enter back into our text, one that I could probably guarantee that everyone in here has heard. And as we do, because, you know, hey, it's summer, uh, we're going to look at it through the viewpoint of story. Now, just like any story, I'm aware that we'll all be coming from this or at this from different points of view. There'll be some in the room who already know the ending, a lot of you, in fact, and you have decided to follow this man, Jesus, that we'll hear about. And for us, our experience of the story will be held and seen differently, particularly from those who maybe know the story or have heard it, but have not yet decided or have decidedly decided not to follow him. Both of these lenses will impact how we interpret the events unfolding here But both are and will be important today as we not only listen to, but again, find ourselves in the midst of this a little bit bizarre story. Now, before we start, I need to catch you up a bit from the events you last heard. Is that okay? It's going to take me a second because i got to close a big gap. Turns out we're doing chunks of Matthew. You know what I'm saying? And there are chunks in between. So here's your chunk in between. 
Uh, two weeks ago, John Mark taught from this previous chapter 26 where we read about Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. This was the place where he went to pray and seek the Father just hours before his betrayal by Judas, one of his disciples, and before being arrested by the religious officials. Now, if this were a story being told on this screen, this is where we'd all pause and the music would begin to shift a bit because things are now changing. We've kind of kept this regular pace, but now things are turning a bit and we're being introduced to new people and new places. Scenes, characters, setting, all of this is shifting. Now, upon his arrest, Jesus is brought before what is called the Sanhedrin, which is a high council of Jewish leaders who were rulers in the land of Israel. They dealt with religious and even criminal matters, particularly in the Jewish community. And so here we find Jesus arrested with charges brought against him. And as false as they may have been, he still stood in this scene accused. Now, while that's happening, we read that the disciples, Jesus' closest friends and allies and champions, all desert him. They vanish. They all go into hiding right as Jesus is in his great moment of distress. Now, some, like Peter, look on from afar, but none come close enough to stand with him or for him. Even Simon Peter, the one whom Jesus said he would build his church upon, denies him over and over and over again, disowning Jesus to all who would ask him. Now, from there, our story takes a bit of a dark turn. I understand how this one got bypassed in the preaching spectrum. And we read about Judas, this disciple who actually takes his own life. And while we, the reader, are becoming more and more aware that he is and may only be a minor player in the responsibility of Jesus' death, we are impacted nonetheless. Finally, after appearing before the Sanhedrin and after being mocked and spit on and slapped, Jesus is sent over to Rome's governor by the name of Pilate. Do you remember Pilate? Yeah, we've talked about him before. Pilate was a man who was notably cranky. He hated his job and he hated the Jewish people. And that's just what you need to know about him historically. It's here that we find him interrogating Jesus. Now, Pilate, ironically, finds no faults, real faults in Jesus, but he succumbs nonetheless to the religious leader's pressure, and he hands Jesus over to die. And at the same time, as was his tradition, he releases a prisoner by the name of Yeshua Barabbas, or Jesus Barabbas, in place of Jesus of Nazareth. And we, uh, as our scene ends, find Jesus being flogged, or what the text calls scourged, which isn't a word we use very often today, which means he was whipped and beaten till his flesh was taken off his body, basically. And he was beaten by his accusers and then led on his way to be crucified. Now, the story continues just as you've heard Christiana read. Our text, kind of an odd one, but it opens, and I would call this scene one, where we find the judicial process beginning to unfold. A sentence is being carried out. Jesus is now in the hands of the Roman execution squad, and he, we read, is mocked and beaten, covered not only in insults that are ironically true, as they call him the king of the Jews, but also ridiculed with a display of grandeur as he is clothed as a king. Though actually naked with a crown of thorns and a robe and a staff, he is bloody and beaten down. Mocking him, we find the Roman soldiers reiterating the narrative of the unique yet important characters in our story, those who we're going to call the political elite. Their mockery coming as a response to Jesus' political and social confrontation to the pretentious power of Rome and the democratic mob. If you are the king, come and rule. 
If you have some kind of kingdom, let's see it. Where are your people? Are they coming to save you? These Roman soldiers, the ones mocking and abusing Jesus, were historically weary of fighting what they understood to be Jewish terrorists. So we find them in this scene having just a little fun, blowing off a little steam by way of abuse before this man's final execution. And I'd invite you just a minute to imagine all this unfolding. You've heard the story before. I'm trying to give you a bit more historical context just to put a little gravity to it, but this was real. This is the story, the scenes that we need to see in order to find ourselves in it. N.T. Wright makes this interesting commentary of this moment when he says, it's hard reading this story to remember that this is the same Jesus who days before was confronting the authorities in the temple, who weeks before was healing people, celebrating with people, and teaching them about God's kingdom. But he says, Matthew has woven hints of all of that into the story to remind us of how Jesus' crucifixion was not a messy accident at the end of a glittering career, but it was, in fact, the proper, though shocking, climax to it. Scene two. In verse 31, we find Jesus emerging from the abuse and the mockery into the open way of the cross. Clothes again, we, we begin to find him here on the road that would lead to his death. And in verse 32, we're introduced to this man uh, from Cyrene named Simon, a man who carried Jesus' cross or the cross beam that Jesus would be crucified on. And I want you to notice, as our text said, this wasn't a volunteer effort. He was forced to do it. We know that this was highly unprecedented. This didn't happen. But many scholars think that because Jesus was so weak from being beaten and kept up all night that he may not have had the strength to actually carry the cross up the road. Either way, this was a notable moment, and for more than one reason. Scholar R.T. France remarked that it was bizarre that we find Jesus on this road alone. His known disciples, who had earlier been told to be ready to carry their cross after him, were nowhere to be found now that the moment for literal obedience to that demand had come. Yes, a bizarre turn of events. This, in literary terms, is only emphasized by the need for a new Simon. Did you catch that? To take the place of the old Simon Peter, who had earlier so loudly protested his loyalty and fidelity to Jesus. End scene two. Scene three, Golgotha. A hill just outside the city limits where criminals were executed. Jesus is offered a drink that is bitter. We have to ask, was this more mockery? We can't say. But what we do read is he doesn't drink it. Some say in more of a lyrical way that he was about to drink the wrath of God. And so he partook not in that drink, but in the other. And in verse 35, scene four begins. With no elaborate details, Matthew writes, when they had crucified him. We don't hear any of the glitz or the glamour. Jesus is crucified. No details about nails or nakedness or suffocating breaths. Just our next line about soldiers dividing his clothes with a quick game of luck and the common practice of labeling the dying. This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Scene five, our cameras zoom out and we find not only two new key characters here, but three. 
We read about two rebels or bandits hanging beside Jesus. We've all seen that scene on our parents' doilies or whatever it may be. You know who I'm talking about, the one on the right and the one on the left. And Matthew emphasizes this language here because he is trying to remind you that just a few chapters back, two disciples named James and John said, we want to be at your right and your left. And again, showing us that there is an absence of those who followed him. Now, our scene ends with a mocking that could be likened back to Matthew chapter 4 when Jesus was confronted by the devil himself. This time, though, it was done by our third character, the Jewish elite, those people who ended our text. Now, they're different from the political elite in that they represented Jesus' heritage and upbringing, the tradition his life was steeped in and the one that he loved. And their mockery, not charged with political accusations or assaults, but spiritual and theological ones. Surely your God doesn't want you to die. You're the son of God. Surely, come off the cross, the temple. You're going to rebuild it in three days. Let's see you do it. All prophetic language being thrown back at him. And it's here that we find ourselves left in the middle of a denouement moment. Things are intensifying and we are longing for it to be wrapped up as it should be. But Matthew is in this final scene allowing us to see where it was all leading the whole time because he doesn't wrap it up nicely with a bow. And no matter who you are or what you've seen or learned or what it's been like as you've followed along in this story, if this was even your first time hearing Matthew's story about Jesus, you still probably wouldn't have imagined that it would have ended like this for this man. It doesn't take a lit degree to know that this moment in the story is significant. Our main character is dying. It's almost as if we're all holding our breath and asking, in light of this text, what just happened? You see, great storytelling will, at one moment or another, leave you on the edge of your seat, and it will force you to ask questions, not just of the storyteller, but of yourself. As I sat in this uh, story this last week, I've had all sorts of emotions come to the surface. Anger, frustration, sadness. But all of them have been generated by three significant questions that I think this story demands we ask and even reconcile, particularly for those who follow Jesus. The first is who really killed Jesus? Was it Rome? Was it the crowd, the religious elite? If this was the way it was supposed to go, was it God himself? Who killed Jesus? And the second question, born of the first, why did he have to die at all? Wasn't there another way? This level of suffering, it's unthinkable to us in this context. None of you have a paradigm for what this actually meant. None of us do. Why did he have to die at all? Isn't there some other way we could have done this? Easier, more gracious. Why? And then finally, third, what kind of love was this? What kind of love was this? These three questions, simple as they may sound, are rarely asked, even by those who follow Jesus. When was the last time you asked them? You know, we usually move through this part of the story, and on to resurrection we go, yeah? We're like, yes, he died. Thanks so much. Big grand finale. Let's do the Easter celebration. This is the one we want to bypass. 
I believe that the answer to these three questions will radically shape how we view ourselves and our place in this world, which is why we have to ask them, particularly those of us who follow this man. So let's look at them together this morning. The first one in particular, who killed Jesus? Now, if you follow the thread in this narrative, you'll notice that Jesus is consistently handed over or abandoned to different characters. Did anyone notice that? It's like Judas betrays him, the disciples desert him, the Sanhedrin gives him up to Pilate, Pilate to the crowd, then finally the crowd to Rome to have him executed. Ping pong. The theologian John Milbank says that even in his death, Jesus is being handed back and forth as if no one actually killed him. But he died from the neglect and lack of his own living space. The reality we have to wrestle with in this story is that it seems there is no clear enemy. And that was precisely Matthew's intent. You see, this question is meant to be coupled not only with your own experience of each of the characters, but with your relation and similarity to each of them. Who killed Jesus? As you move through this text, you and I were meant to ask, am I like the political elite or the religious elite? Or like Pilate, or the disciples, or the crowd. Now, I imagine if you're anything like me and you have enough pride to sink a battleship, your immediate response is, of course not. I would never do that. I would never do that to Jesus. If I saw him out there on that road, beaten as he was, I would never do that. But the power of this text is that you are meant to wonder, what if I am? If you put yourself in the story as it was meant to be, Is it possible that you could ask the same questions, mock in the same ways? Like the political elites, is it possible for you to respond to Jesus with something like, Jesus, you are the king. Do something about the riots in Portland, about the election, about global warming. God, your kingdom is supposed to be ruling and reigning. Come and do something. If you're really God, then do it. Move. Maybe you're like the religious elites. And somewhere within you, you have it in you to say, Jesus, if you're God, why don't you do something about this cancer? Why don't you do something about this child that's still not home? God, you have power over all creation. Why aren't you renewing all things in front of us? Why haven't you fill in the blank? Or maybe you're like the disciples, and you too have been tempted to desert Jesus for fear of what other people may think or do. And I'm not talking in big moments, I'm talking in the small ones by the water cooler. Or maybe you are like Pilate, and you have been tempted to passively accept what the crowd determines to be true at the expense and the name of Jesus. Or like the crowd, Are you fickle and untrustworthy, swayed by the opinion of the next and most influential thing? Matthew, as we have seen from the beginning, has written this gospel in a way where we can't avoid being these characters, hearing each of our own voices in theirs. Who killed Jesus? The answer is all of them and all of us. If we don't get that, we will miss the whole meaning to this story. 
It's a rare thing, unfortunately, for us to talk about being complicit in Jesus' death, to talk about the reality that it was our sin that Jesus died for, yours and mine. You know, we live in a day and an age where sin is a taboo word. Honestly, it's just like you can't touch it with a 10-foot pole. And there's a temptation in all of us to minimize and mitigate our need to be delivered because of it. We fail often to come face to face with what our sin really does, me very much included. I like to bypass, I know how to speak to God about my sin, God, no big deal. One little lie. Even this week I had to do confession to a friend, it's humiliating, I don't like it, it's not what I wanna do, and it was minor. And I knew he could have completely ignored it because it was no big deal, it was a joke. Sin is difficult to confront. It is hard for us to name. But if we're going to understand the story we're actually a part of, we're going to have to come to grips with our place in it and our need for the actual cross. We are not just resurrection people. We are people of the cross. And there's an invitation here in this text to come face to face with this. What's so powerful to me about this story is that it's here that we are reminded that though we are complicit in his death, we are also saved by it. It's the miracle of it. Meaning that as we see this scene play out, every choice Jesus made to not act against the mockery and the accusations were personal to each of us. Because from his choice to do that, we were given deliverance and freedom. Now that leads us to our next question. Why did he have to die? Seems easy enough to answer, right? It's yes and no kind of question. Now, the Sunday school answer that most of you are like, I've got this. This would be me, by the way. I'd be like, easy. (laughs) Um, The Sunday school answer for you, if you don't know what Sunday school is, don't worry about that. Um, (laughs) Sunday school answer is so that we could be forgiven and saved and we can have life abundant. That's like a bonus, you know? I got like a check plus. Oh, Bethany, another sticker. Um, And that would be correct, by the way. That's the right thing, and you should learn that in Sunday school, and you should teach your kids that. It's really important. But in keeping with the story, I think it's important for us to dig a bit deeper, deeper, and maybe in, in even more of an adult way, wade into the why. Why did he have to die? Scene by scene, we find Jesus silent, moving through the narrative with what seems to be a holy, unearthly resolve. He doesn't make any big moves, no sweeping statements, like not even like a shut up, you know what I mean? Like any of you get cranky at the end of the day, you know? And I'm just thinking like, can you imagine? And maybe it was because he didn't even have breath. But still, nothing. He just simply goes the way of the cross. And to me, this is one of the most provocative and captivating things in our story. He receives every blow, every brush of the leather whip, on his back with an enduring power we can only imagine. And he does so with purpose, this unique, striking purpose. I want us to think back for a moment, not just on the story we've read today, but on the one we've read for the last few years. Can you try to just go back? Some of you are like, it's real slow, I know. But but in our time, in this book, we've learned that this God-man Jesus is the real deal, that he has a mission he's accomplishing, not just to Israel, but to the world. 
We've heard his teachings, the Sermon on the Mount, this powerful narrative for flourishing and life in the kingdom of God. We've seen the inauguration of the kingdom of God actually come into play, miracles. We've seen deliverances and him confronting the religious leaders like he has done a thousand times. We've seen him eat meals and we've seen him raise the dead. We've seen him do all of these miraculous things and now we find him here on a cross, crucified. Why did he have to die? If we look back on Matthew's story, what he's been telling us from the beginning. If we look closely, we will find the answer. He had to die because his death was not an isolated event from the mission and purpose of his life. They were not inseparable realities, nor are they ours. Everything in his life was intertwined with this coming death. And Matthew's been telling us that from the beginning. Stanley Hauerwas summed it up this way. He said, Jesus had to be killed because he is the son of God. He must be killed because he has called into existence a new people who constitute a challenge to the world order based on lies and deceit. He must be killed because he is a threat to all who rule in the name of safety and security. He must be killed because we do not desire to have our deepest desires exposed. He must be killed because we do not want our loves governed by his love. He must be killed because we refuse to forgive our enemies. Jesus must be killed because we do not believe in a God who creates us and who would come among us after our likeness. Or so we have learned from Matthew. Why did Jesus have to die? The answer is so that he could once again Reveal the heart of God in its truest form. Now, this story can't be divorced from the one we heard in chapter one of this book. Jesus, the Messiah, was and is here, and he would reveal not only the heart of God, but God himself to the watching world. And this would be his great ambition. His life and his death, this story would carry in it an invitation for all who heard it, No matter where you land on the spirituality platform, everyone has an invitation extended to them when they hear this story. To those who do not yet know God, I mean know God, and there are some of us probably in this room, we don't know him. I think the invitation would be to see what God is really like in and through Jesus, to really see him and to turn away from your sins and to believe in the Son of God. And to those who already know him, for us it would be to follow in the way of our Messiah. That is our invitation. To share both in his death and his life and to show the world what God is really like. Now before we move on, I want to answer our third question. What kind of love was this? Now this doesn't go with my flow. Can you tell? This happened this morning and last night and yesterday afternoon. Because I couldn't leave this story without asking this question. Now, it doesn't fit in kind of a cool, sexy narrative, so I was like, nah, we'll just move this along, God. But for me, and I think for us, there is something to this question that should stir us, maybe even afresh and anew, to the knowledge of the love of God. 
When hearing a story like this one, when we enter into it, I think it is impossible to ignore the radical display of love. It's radical. It's insane. I had like four points. I had to get rid of them because they were bad. But that was one of them. This was radical. This was insane. In this account of Jesus' death, we are left with so few details. Now, it will continue on in the coming weeks, but in this account, this is all we have. No strong descriptors, no compelling cries from Jesus. Come and follow me. Come and die that you would live. Nothing. No dramatic ex, you know, exclamations. Nothing from him. No declaration of great love. I have loved you with an everlasting love. Nothing. Just Jesus. By the way, unwavering in his fidelity and faithfulness, and not just to the Father, but to you. Steady and unwavering. The audacity of a victor willing to take the losing road for the sake of the other. This is love. And look, we have to acknowledge something, especially when we come to this text, because this wouldn't be that compelling if Jesus wasn't innocent, if he wasn't perfectly blameless, if in the story when we read it, we didn't just go, oh yeah, I find myself here next to Mary and Peter or whatever, that we actually went, you know, there's one standout here. His name is Jesus of Nazareth and none of us are like him. None of us. We've read the story, we're watching this play out. None of us are like him. If he wasn't blameless, this wouldn't matter. And if we hadn't had the last 26 chapters of this book and found that he is not only not a criminal, but he is a compelling, humble, holy leader who is the Messiah. He is the savior of the world and we've seen it from top to bottom. This image of Jesus being put to death today would not impact you the way it does and make you a little uncomfortable and a little humbled if you didn't know that he was the one who was not worthy of death, that he was the most undeserving of death, including in this room right here. And that's the rub. What kind of love was on display? The kind of love that is greater than your sin, that outruns your sin. That kind of long suffering that we see in him on the cross is the kind that reaches to the uttermost. It is more pure and selfless than you could ever know. And it has more staying power than you could ever hope for. And for me, that's the power here. His love, somehow this weird holy resolve that he carries, it feels through this text. I'm watching and going, when are you gonna break, dude? Look, I'm not, even I'm saying, look, I'm not worth it. I'm gonna fail you. I'm gonna blow this a lot. <laughs> I'm not worth it, come on. You don't have to do this, you don't have to go all the way. That's my thing with the cross, it's like, you don't have to do all of it, you don't have to go all the way. The love we hear, we see here, is a call to the deepest and truest parts of each of us. Somehow echoing that we all, as Brennan Manning puts it, are radically beloved of God. This is his strong declaration to us. In this part of our story, we choose to either accept it or not. And we find that we are even more loved than we ever dared to hope, no matter what you decide. And that comforting yet unsettling truth always beckons a response, always. You know, I grew up Baptist and we always had a response. And I used to think it was really annoying because I was always like, do I have to get saved again tonight? Like it was one of those, do you know what some of you are like, is that good? Anyway, 
I was like, is my heart beating because I'm hungry? Or is like this the spirit? You know, I'm like eight, like, uh. And they're like, all to Jesus, one more time. You know, and I was like, oh. Um, but I, I look back on my heritage now and my growing up experience, and I bless God for it, man. Those Baptists are coming for everybody. Every week, you know, based off of Moody's stories and a few others, they gave an altar call because every week when the gospel's proclaimed, we should all have a response to it. And that's what I love about this. Now, next week, the story will continue. But for today, as we find ourselves at the crux of the story's great denouement, we're coming up to it. The moment before all the things will start to wrap up and feel like Easter again. I wonder if it's here that we actually need to pause and let ourselves sit a while in these questions. You know, the cross and the story of it has historically, even for us Protestants, been a symbol of weakness or suffering. But in our story, I think it's better understood to be a symbol of, as Rowan Williams puts it, the sheer unimaginable differentness of God. And I believe that some of us today, myself, very much included, need to be reminded of the differentness of God, his differentness from you and from me. So before we end, just a couple thoughts. The cross is the convergence of the gospel story, no matter how you slice it. It is the ultimate picture of the differentness of God, and that's just the truth. It's from the cross that we, those who follow him, and even those who may not yet are compelled and impacted, and again, like I said earlier, we are moved to respond. But often when we think about the differentness of God, we tend to think of it in terms of our own failures or in the ways that we are not something. But the cross in this otherworldly way demands that we actually move through that experience to see something more. You see, the great dichotomy of the cross or the differentness of God on display here is that it doesn't look like us. (laughs) In the cross, there is no compulsion to leave, no instinct to bail, no fear too great, just the holy, remarkable, staying power of love that cannot be known any other way except from a perfect God. I'm going to say it again. It cannot be known in any other way except from God. In Jesus, there is, unlike the disciples, unlike us, a faithfulness even to the faithless. The differentness of God is rooted in this eternal reality, this eternal knowledge of love we cannot comprehend. It is never ending. It is this perfect triunal display of God's love that's not benign and passive, but active, always active. It's never ending, not then and not now. And it outdoes, like I said earlier, your greatest sin. The love of God outdoes your greatest sin. The sin you committed last night, the sin you committed this morning, the sin you committed against your family that you feel is irreparable, the love of God outruns it, always immeasurably more. And it holds on to the last minute for your greatest good and for your glory. That's the love of God. That's the power of God. And and this is all I'm after today. Today, I think there's just an invitation for us to sit with the truth, whether it's for the first time or the millionth time. 
to allow the impending death of Jesus in our story to reveal to us again a knowledge, a new knowledge of the Father's love. Did you know you could receive one? New information about how God loves you, new information about how you see yourself and how you exist in the world. That's the purpose of the cross. There's a gift today And having this text remind us again of Christ's ability to absorb our sin so that we would know life, to move us into a greater knowledge of what this death actually means so that we can extend the gift of life that comes through death to other people. As we sit with the cross, we also need to be reminded of the forgiveness that is coming to us in this moment the one we find offered through Jesus to confront the forgiveness we both need to give and receive. It is good for us to sit with the death of Christ, church. It is good for us to remember his suffering and his agony, and that's a whole other teaching that somebody more brilliant than me is gonna teach. But today I felt compelled to say to us again, to to invite us again, to find ourselves in this story, which by the way, we live and breathe and have our being, and to remember Jesus. Now, um, before we end, I need to do a little confession, um, especially in light of this text. I've always, um, this is so true, I've always had such a hard time with the image of Jesus on the cross, which I know is weird coming from a pastor, because you'd think we like that crap. Uh, (laughs) Now, it's obviously not crap, I don't mean it's crap, I just mean you think we like symbols and Some of us too. Now, for years, I would emphasize to friends and leaders that Jesus was no longer on the cross, man. So I don't need a symbol of it hanging around my neck, you know what I'm saying? Or in my office, or in front of me as I pray. I just don't need that. Arrogant, by the way. Now, I'm not like crazy anti-Jesus on the cross. It's beautiful. I, I can engage it. Obviously, I love Jesus. I just don't prefer it. You know, and I grew up, like I said earlier, Baptist. So we don't see him anywhere. Do you know what I mean? He's resurrected all over the place. And that's just the world I came from. Now, in church experiences like Good Friday services and similar, I understood its power, the ability to see the cross, him crucified on it. But at some level, seeing Jesus hanging there for me, watching him alone always made me feel sad and uncomfortable, for lack of a better word. I just would be like, ugh. Moving on, you know, when's Sunday coming, you know? Now, some of that is because I love Jesus. I mean, he's real. He's a person. So that's like looking at my person on the cross, and that's hard. That's a hard thing for me to do. But some of it, as I've been discovering over the last few months, was more deeply rooted. This last year, and especially the last few months, have been really hard. I know we keep saying that from up here, and I didn't want to be lame and say it, but I just got to tell you the truth. It's been brutal, the worst, in fact. Um, But that's just the reality. You know, leadership is hard. It has felt lonelier and harder than ever. God, and not in the sense of like, I'm just drudging through, like, God, what am I supposed to do? God, how then now shall I live? Is, Is this my place here? Is this not my place? And where do I fit in all of this? Hard that way at like a personal level. You all aren't hard. The journey is hard, you know? Um, And I've had hard, weird circumstances that I've had to navigate. So it's just been all over the place. And during a low moment, a few weeks back, Gavin, uh, my friend and one of our pastors, stopped me and he handed me this guy. Okay. He's a big guy, isn't he? It's not quite the necklace I was hoping for, but uh, 
but I'll be looking forward to my next one. And he hands this to me, and I mean, it's hardy. You know, it's like metal, and it's Jesus on the cross, as you can tell. Um, and he said he thought this could be helpful for me as I was processing pain and working through forgiveness, and even more than that, that it would be good for me to have a symbol of God's nearness to me, and inside I'm like, uh. <laughs> um, and I'm not sure that I actually rolled my eyes um, because we have this joke about how much he loves seeing Jesus on the cross, and I'm the opposite. I'm like, off the cross, but I take pictures of things and send them to him. Anyway, where I'm like, you would like this. It's scary. <laughs> um, anyway, but I took it because I'm polite and, and also because I trust him, and he was serious about it. And I was like, okay, there's something to this. So the next morning, I pull this out of my purse, <laughs> and... Uh, <laughs> And I sit it on the couch next to me where I do my quiet time. You know what I mean? I'm like, okay. And I mostly was like, just so I can tell Gavin I did it. You know what I mean? Like, ah, I did it. Ah, thank you so much. That was so sweet. Um, but as soon as I sat it on the couch next to me, and not in a creepy way, he didn't say anything, um, but I heard the Spirit of God say to me, hold it. Hold it. Just hold it. So I'm like, Ugh. Okay. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> and, um, and I held it, and as I did, I just began to weep. Um, because there was something powerful about seeing the death of Jesus right in front of me, about being near to it and holding a symbol of it in my hands, and all of that did something to me. There was something powerful in remembering this moment and what it meant that he too had suffered, that he too knew betrayal, that he too was human, that he too felt alone, and that he loved me enough to suffer and die, me. You know, again, in the old Baptist way, we say he was thinking about you when he died on that cross. And he was thinking about me. And somehow this image began to spread deep in me and release something new in me. Now, there's so much I could say about this, but here's my point. Now that I've sat with this guy for the last few months, uh, my dynamics and circumstances have changed in some ways, and God use, has used this to help center me and speak to me and to change me. And though it's been insanely good, I mean transformative, I probably tell Gerald once a week, well, I sat with the cross this morning, or whatever, and Gerald's like, okay, bud. You know, and I'm like, yeah, this was good. I'm holding the crucifix, you know, like I'm so Catholic, you know, um, which I, I respect. Um, I, I, it's been great. It's been so transformative. But it is still hard. It is still hard. Like, I'm months into this, and I, this morning, was like, okay, off the side of the couch from his seat to mine, you know. Like, okay, and I... I hold it, and he comes near. And I just wonder if that's not just true for me, but it's true for all of us. Traditionally, again, we are people of the resurrection, a big Sunday celebration. But I think that the emphasis um, uh, that we've put on that has caused many of us to bypass Christ's death and the power found in it. There's a need for us to remember his death and to remember that he was after us in it. It's hard to comprehend, let alone to receive a love so big and so undeserving. But to sit in the cross means that we are forced to receive it 
and to be changed by it. And what I'm figuring out for those of us who are apprentices of Jesus is it's a must. To bypass the cross is to bypass an encounter with the living God. This propels us forward in both our love and fidelity to Jesus, the cross, where, by the way, it all started, where we first said yes. This is where we find the differentness of God that we need so desperately.